Welcome to the We Are SE podcast, Monday morning cornerback edition. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Rideau. Daryl, a, a big home win over Utah, 30-23. to 23. Uh, USC comes out, second play of the game, Keaton Slovis goes down. You have to turn to Matt Fink, and, and Matt Fink responded. Uh, he, he has a big game, throws for 300 and, over 350 yards, three touchdowns. He, he did have a big interception that, that you thought, okay, maybe this is going to turn the tide and, and Utah is going to be able to come back. But a defense that does just enough, a wide receiver and Michael Pittman that just absolutely steps up in the way that you need a senior, uh, you know, captain, a veteran to be able to do that. Let, let's go into specifically Matt Fink. What did you see from Matt Fink in, in that game? Um, how, how did he react to coming in? How did he handle the offense? And then maybe more importantly for USC, how, how do you see him kind of if he has to go against Washington? Can, can, is this sort of, a, a, you know, production that he can continue? Well, for, first of all, you got to give a lot of credit and tip your cap to Matt Fink for just mentally being dialed in and prepared and just really getting himself emotionally ready to take over for a situation that perhaps he wasn't expecting to come in so early in the game. Usually when you're a backup quarterback, you, you, you know, you think, okay, perhaps I'm just going to be the eyes on the sideline. And then if the score gets out of hand, perhaps I'll get some mop up duty. And sometimes when you think like that and you don't prepare like a starter, that is the type of emotion and energy and body language that, that you project onto the football field. But no, he came out like he was the starter and he was very hot. And again, credit to his preparation within a system that appears to be very quarterback friendly. But his athleticism really shined. In a game, once again, where he wasn't preparing as a starter, um, was it the cleanest of games? Absolutely not. But here is somebody who could have come in and just been a dink and dunk type of guy in that thing. Instead, no, he was very aggressive, stayed within, within the, um, the expectations of what the offense needed, which was to distribute the ball. But he did more than that. He moved the pocket when he needed to move the pocket, and he took his shots. He gave his receivers 50-50 ball chances with the confidence that they would come down with it. And you can tell, Eric, as the game progressed and wore on and the receivers recognized that he was going to be aggressive, there was an extra pep in their step, a little aggressiveness to the way that they competed at the point of contact to ensure that they came down with those balls. But like anybody who comes in hot, a defense was not expecting this type of tempo because they didn't game plan for that. They were expecting a little bit more closer to what they saw against BYU and, and Akeem Slovis. But when he got knocked out of the game or left the game woozy, what the, the impression that we got from that was that Fink came in through caution to the wind and this defense did not have time to prepare, nor were they expecting him to be as athletic as he was. What, what I liked, and you hit on it a little bit, is that when Matt Fink comes in, they keep throwing the ball. We saw last year when Matt Fink comes in, it was like, okay, you can do anything except throw the ball. And as a quarterback, I think that definitely – affects you when it's like okay I'm gonna go in hey what plays do you want me to run no no no, we don't really want you to do anything I, I think right. letting him just kind of sling it 
from his I mean I mean he came in I think it was six for seven on that first drive he got to throw the ball and he really got that vote of confidence from Clay Helton from Graham Harrell to say yeah you really are running this offense you can do you know you we're gonna let you do what JT Daniels did in the first half against Fresno State we're gonna let you do what Keaton Slovis did against Stanford and we're gonna let you throw it I think another point that you hit on that I think is really important is Graham Harrell sort of says, you know, yeah, here's the offense, but if they see something, they can do something else. You just better make sure you're right. And when Matt Fink and and Michael Pittman sort of mentioned it after the game, he had a lot of situations where Matt Fink was like, Hey, go run, run a fade. I'm going to throw it up. Uh, (laughs) And they were right on that a lot. And when you get sort of that sort of confidence and when you're playing like that in the system, and I don't, I think, that's something where when you look back against BYU, maybe you didn't take enough shots like that. You, you didn't kind yeah. of give your receivers enough of a chance to say, you know, you're better than those guys you're going against. Go up and get it. And I think being able to do that against Utah, and maybe it's something playing at home versus playing on the road, but I do think Matt Fink kind of brought that sort of confidence and really that sort of, you know, like you said, throwing caution to the wind, just – Let's go do this. You know, we're, we're kind of playing with house right. money at this point. Uh, let, let's go be athletic. Let's go let wide right. receivers make plays. Keaton Slovis did that against Stanford. You just didn't see that as much, I think, against BYU. Is that BYU's defense? Was that USC making so. decisions? I think that's something that we'll right. definitely get a sense of uh, against Washington, no matter who the quarterback is. Right. But, you know, you, you, asked, you also asked a question can this type of style that Matt Fink displayed in the Coliseum on an emotional night against a top 10 team in Utah, can that transfer and can that travel? Well, because of the fact that Clay Helton relinquished his offensive duties over to Graham Harrell and Harrell did something what I perceived to be unconventional. He gave four quarterbacks darn their equal opportunity in terms of reps with starters, with backups, didn't matter. He just wanted four quarterbacks in this system who are all very capable of playing anywhere in the, um, in the country, an opportunity to just play and learn the system. Because of that, I think that that also helped with the transition uh, for Fink onto the field. But make no mistake about it, everything comes back to the mean. It always goes back to statistics. At times, you know, you can get hot and you're often classified as an outlier when you have that kind of success right away. But the more sample size a team gets on you, just as Utah kind of got on think as the game wore on, they can then start making some adjustments and trying to take away what you do best. What I perceive about after four games, looking at the air raid close up, what I perceive is their philosophy is very similar to what a a former USC offensive coordinator, Norm Chow, would do. They use short passing game to set up the run, the running game to take advantage of deep balls. And when you go back to the BYU game with Slovis, when you take away what the offense needs to do in order to to get its rhythm going, you're asking Slovis now to play left-handed. And as a freshman, you can be shell-shocked by that. But with, with Fink, Fink didn't have that pressure coming in because there was no expectation as to what he could do. Therefore, he reined it and dialed it up, and he, he gained success 
because he was successful at getting the ball down the field and recognizing that his playmakers were going to be playmakers on this day, taking advantage of the size advantages that the receivers had across the board with Utah's um, defensive backs. But with that being said, there are some things that they are going to have to clean up if they're going to be able to take this type of aggressive offense on the road because be, uh, because um, while Utah is a good team, University of Washington is a much better defense. In fact, they lead the Pac-12 in scoring defense and total yardage given up. So they're going to have their hands cut out for them. As we saw, the very same BYU team that USC played a more confident and experienced Washington team that, that has been in the playoffs and can travel equally on the road and not deviate from its playing, you know, can, is a pretty balanced team, whether on the road or at home, demonstrated that if you take care of your business and you get on top and you don't have those self-inflicting wounds, you should have put a team like BYU away. Now USC has their hands full going up at Husky Stadium, and let's see what this team is all about. Will we see the team that we saw against Utah, or will we see kind of a combination of playing on a road in a hostile environment like Husky Stadium, which can get very loud as those aluminum stadiums start to rattle with the echoes of fans that, that just feel like they're on top of you at times. So one thing we're going to watch this week is the health of Keaton Slovis uh, Sunday night. Clay Helton didn't have an update. He said on Tuesday he'll probably have a better idea. There's no kind of drop-dead date in terms of, oh, he has to practice on Thursday in order to play on Saturday. Um, but with, you know, with concussions, it's usually, you know, generally safe to assume probably missing the next week. Um, uh, again, it, it seems like if if he's ready to go, Keaton Slovis will be the guy. But do you get a sense that they would be better off, you know, with Slovis or with Fink, or, or does it matter at this point in, in this offense? Again, like you said, traveling up to, to take on, you know, a, a really sort of experienced veteran team in, in Washington. Well, speaking firsthand experience from someone who's experienced multiple concussions, I've had nine documented concussions and I've, I've gone through, baseline test and so forth and so on. And what I can tell you about a concussion or symptoms of, of second impact syndrome, which is when the head hits the ground and it kind of gets rattled, you can be in class, feel good all week, or you can feel yourself sensitive to light, or you can sneeze and all of a sudden start seeing stars and it triggers. The reason being is because, in my opinion, the best analogy I can give is when you have head trauma, it's similar to like an, an earthquake. Any tremors or aftershocks can, can almost have the same impact as the actual earthquake. Or in this case, if he, has, if he sneezes too loud and his head rattles, it could trigger those symptoms. So the coaching staff will be cautious. And what better way can you be cautious when you have the insurance policy of Matt Fink knowing that he performed well, having confidence, and this team around him having confidence. So now you know at least you have a sample size of what Matt Fink can do. And I think you almost create two types of game plans. One that utilizes the skill set of Keaton Slovis and his accuracy, which is the best thing for USC at this time. If, if healthy, you start Slovis. But if you can't go with Slovis, 
then you put Fink in a situation where he can be successful. He seems to feel very confident rolling out, but not running, moving the pocket when necessary, but staying in the pocket and, and, and testing the, uh, the heart of a defense. If you're Graham Harrell, you love that insurance policy. But now you also have to go back and do some self-evaluating and figure out, okay, we got away with a couple of uh, plays that could have gone either way, but fortunate for USC, they favored the Trojans offensively in terms of the aggressive nature of, of Fink. But then you want to talk to him about taking care of the football if Slovis can't go. It'd be, uh, be interesting to see how this team prepares either way, but I don't think you'll see much of a drop-off emotionally from this team if Matt Fink is deemed the starter. Can you go into that a little bit? You have some experience playing at USC and rolling through quarterbacks in a season. What does that do when you, you know, you, you know who your guy is, then all of a sudden he's not there. Then all of a sudden that next guy is not there. How does that affect sort of the, the locker room and even on the sideline, you know, mid game, pre game, post game. How, how do you feel like a, I guess, how did your team respond? And then, how do you feel like this team can sort of, you know, use that moving forward? So in, in 2000, Carson Palmer uh, got injured. Actually, it was 1999, I stand correct. It was my freshman year. Carson Palmer was a sophomore. He got injured the first game, and we had high hopes and aspirations of Carson Palmer, who would eventually become a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. You take him off the field. Now, all of a sudden, we're running through a Mike Van Rapp horse, and eventually, it gets down to a John Fox. And I'll never forget the look, at the, the look on the seniors' faces, those who have been preparing four years for their senior year opportunity to finally have a chance to kind of run the, um, the gamut within the Pac-12 and feel like they have a fighter's chance because they actually have a quarterback that they believed in. You take him off the field. And it was this stoic look, this look of indifference on the faces of many. I was too young to know the difference. So I prepared to the best of my ability. But the seniors had this dejected look. And it took about two and a half, three quarters for them to really kind of come to grips that Carson Palmer wasn't going to be out there. And so a lot of guys started to play tight. Some guys started to play for themselves. Other guys just continued to play free. But the next week, as, they, as the team prepared and as we prepared, knowing that we were going to be rolling with the backup, I'll never forget our, our position coaches talking to us about, hey, you know, you can't take those same type of chances because you just don't know what the offense is going to be able to do. And when you have that kind of dissension in your locker room, all it takes is nibble, 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 chips away at it. And you keep chipping away at the confidence of a team, and all of a sudden, you have a fractured team. I don't get the sense with this particular group. Because of how they all practice with one another all throughout um, uh, fall camp, they know what to expect from Fink. That's going to give them some confidence and assurance of seeing how he played. But make no mistake about it, for many of the seniors, there's going to be a question of uncertainty. You know, will the the gas run out on this offense, or can we continue to kind of run behind a system regardless of who's at quarterback? So the key to me is let's watch and see how aggressive the rest of the team continues to play, or do they become a little bit more assertive and, and, um, and unsure of what to expect on the road and start to play timid? 
allowing plays to be um, caught in front of them as opposed to continuing their aggressive nature and getting after Washington. Be curious to see how this team reacts on the road, knowing that this is a big marquee matchup. And I think one of the things you can say about this team so far, that there are a lot of sort of deficiencies that, that we'll get into a bit, but one of the things you can say is that they, they are playing hard. That it, it doesn't feel like sort of a lot of games last year where at certain points of the game, you can just sense this whole, like, what are we doing? Why are we even out here? You know, me mentality that would sort of crop up at points last year. When it feels like the field is kind of tilting against them, this team this year ha has shown sort of an ability to pick themselves back up, get back into it. And, and I think that, to, to your point is kind of a, a, a huge point because they haven't really let the quarterback issues and not that they're really issues. I mean, every, every quarterback's played well, but when you have that sort of uncertainty back there and when guy, you know, when it's just kind of dominoes, uh, they, they've really sort of been able to, to keep, you know, the, the intensity up and pick themselves back up and play hard. And I do think looking ahead at Washington, I think that loss to BYU, where, again, if you spot any team kind of a 0-3 hole in terms of turnovers and when they came and where they came, that's a tough, that's a, that's a tough spot to win against pretty much anybody. Um, yep. but, but I do think losing that game on the road maybe helps USC traveling to Washington because you get that idea of, you know, this is what it's like and this is what can happen. These are some things to avoid. But looking back at Utah a little bit, again, spinning forward a little, looking at USC's defense, the, the outside containment, the outside runs, Utah obviously came in with this idea that we are going to hit the edges any way possible. And that's something where, you know, do they do that against other teams as much as they do that against USC? We'll sort of see the rest of the way. But Washington is going to have no problem saying, look, we're going to hit those edges until you can stop us. And they have a few guys that they can do that with. Right. Where does that fix come from, from USC? Is, I mean, is there anything we Clay Helton again on Saturday, on Sunday night talked about, he liked Clancy Pendergast kind of bringing pressure from the edge a little bit more to try to contain that. So obviously there is an idea of a fix mm -hmm. in terms of kind of scheme and, and look and, and what you're doing after the snap. But is it any, I mean, is there anything else more than just set the edge physically and do it better than you've been doing? I mean, wh where can they wow. go from there? Where can they find an answer? Is there even a, an answer out there to be found? Okay, so, you know, there, there's a lot to just kind of unravel from this, but sure. I'll break it down like this. USC's defense against Utah was very much like Cool Whip or whipped cream a lot of empty calories, a lot of yards in between. And, um, and yes, Utah had their success, but they didn't have those chunk yard plays that just broke USC's back. There was not a lot of yards after contact. A lot of guys were wrapping up and contained. But the edges at USC right now, for one reason or another, continue to be soft. You know, you have a true freshman in Drake Jackson, and then when healthy, you have Christian Rector, who it's critical that before they start thinking about sacks or, uh, or tackles for losses, it's very important that they do set the edge and that they don't allow for their speed to get them out of position. 
rushing up the field and creating these layered approaches. So what can USC do defensively? Place a sound gap responsibility. USC doesn't play with three linebackers, so the nickel is very important. And the nickel is often the, uh, the fifth defensive back right now is played by two people, Greg Johnson and Chase Williams. So um, it's important that they recognize that they have a gap too that they have to fulfill, that they're not just out there covering grass, that they have to come in there and steal the edge. Otherwise, what happens is advantage goes to the offense when you're only playing with two interior linebackers and you're not getting help from that nickel position, that, that, that corner who's oftentimes outside of the box, but needs to position himself to play what we call the nipple from the tackle, in between the tackle and, and the uh, slot receiver. If they can continue to put seven to eight guys in the box, I think you can see some more of that containment happening. But right now, because you're only playing with two interior linebackers, what's happening is it's allowing for the edge rushers to get chipped. So when, when Clay talks about Clancy dialing up more pressure, well, that can be like playing with fire. Because if you rely upon pressure too much, now all of a sudden you have voids in your secondary. And when you talk about a Chris Peterson coach team going all the way back to his days at Boise State, he believes in length times width times height. He will attack you vertically, horizontally, and in dimensions that you can't even think about, okay? He's going to stretch the middle of your field, bring somebody right underneath that, and then once you vacate that space, you'll find that they'll fulfill, they'll fill those voids with a leak out running back or um, just someone coming from opposite side of the field. So it is very important that you read your keys and you stay home when you're supposed to stay home in zone coverage. And in man coverage, you effectively communicate. Because if you don't take away one or the other and you allow for Washington to remain balanced, it's going to be a long night for this defense. But this is a defense very capable when healthy in the secondary that can match up man to man and allow that front seven to get after the running game. And I think one important point to note is Jacob Eason the Washington quarterback he is not a runner now now he's not you know a statue he has you know positive rushing yards on the season but I mean com compared to Tyler Huntley he's sort of a, a bag of concrete I mean no nobody in the Pac-12 runs like Tyler Huntley did and they actually did you know in terms of him scrambling there weren't a lot of you know those back-breaking runs where where we've seen quarterbacks against USC kind of consistently pick up third and 12s or, or things like that it felt like USC did a good job especially sort of third medium third and long of yep. flushing him out making him think okay I can take off run and then he would pick up you know maybe five six yards and not you know not not get anywhere sort of close to a first down but in if you're putting yourself kind of in USC defensive players mindsets is there sort of a, a false sense of security maybe and now seeing, okay, we've got a quarterback that doesn't run. How do you sort of stay disciplined in those running lanes? Cause again, like we mentioned, he doesn't have a huge number of runs, but you know, you, you've still seen those guys pick yeah. up, you know, those critical third downs. What, what sort of mind games does that play with you as a defensive player? And what are maybe some, some pitfalls that, that come from setting yourself up after you get, a really great scrambling quarterback to go against a guy where in your mind you're saying that this guy can't scramble anywhere close. Well, I think the, the key term is scramble. 
Okay, he's not, he, uh, Jacob Eason may not be a running quarterback, but he is a scrambling quarterback that looks for windows and pockets, and his eyes are always down the field. So as a secondary, from the safeties down to the linebackers, there's a term that should be echoed through all throughout practice, plaster, plaster, plaster. Almost like think of, and I hate to draw this comparison, so please, I'm not comparing them as quarterbacks, but just from a mentality standpoint. Um, when you think of Aaron Rodgers from Green Bay, yes, he is very capable of running the ball, but when he scrambles, his eyes are always downfield. The same can be said with Russell Wilson in the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks. They scramble to, to cause the defense to break down, and once you break down, that's when the, the real plays are made. Eason has some of that capability in him. While he wants to throw in rhythm, he can scramble to kind of recreate and, and reset the pocket with his eyes downfield, looking for seam routes or post routes or crossing routes that he can take advantage of from an undisciplined player. Now, the, the issue that, that USC has is they're not conscious of it, and they retreat coming downhill thinking that, that they have to help with the running game, I mean, with the quarterback who's running, and, and they lose pursuit. All of a sudden, you're going to see uh, players wide open, and, and that can get a little bit frustrating. So expect this week for the word plaster to be ingrained in the head and the minds of many of the players, and for them to stay home and trust that the front four and front six can get to the quarterback and swarm. Because he's not the most elusive quarterback, you have to believe that the foot speed of the front seven has the confidence that they can, they can minimize any scrambling runs from Jacob Eason. But if this secondary drops, like I said, you know, if they drop from their spots and they start collapsing to try to pursue downhill, it's going to be a long night because of the accuracy of Jacob East. This is like we mentioned, this is a Taking the picture after the snap is going to be the most important thing for the USC quarterback because what you see pre-snap is not going to be what you see post-snap. That is what Keaton Slovis struggled with in especially those three interceptions against BYU. And I think that's a thing um, that, that you really have to look at from the Washington State defense because they have a secondary that has talent everywhere and they will yeah, ask them the board. to yep. do, to do a lot of different things, I think, to really kind of shake up just what Matt Fink was able to do against Utah, which was, Hey, I've got single coverage out there. I'm throwing it up to that guy. Well, okay. Well, well what's interesting is for me, I, I tend to take a chapter out of Cal's defense and Cal's offense. Yeah. Cal runs a hybrid um, air raid attack. And they seem to get the most out of that, although their offense is porous this year. They seem to score just enough points, but they know how they're built. They're built from the defense out. So they play according to their strengths. And Cal's defense gave, at times, um, Washington enough fits to really throw off the rhythm and timing. USC is athletic enough to get the same type of uh, counter-reaction from, from uh, Washington. Now, make no mistake about it, over the last few years, these are two teams that haven't played each other a lot. So it's still somewhat unfamiliar for Washington to match up with USC, um, unsimilar to how Stanford and USC seem to play each other every year, and in some cases, potentially twice a year, when Stanford and USC are both good, representing the North and the South. 
But with that being said, you're absolutely right. They can get pressure defensively from so many different areas, whether it's um, Miles Bryant or this kid Benning um, Patoy, who, who's on the line, already has three sacks for the year, tackle for losses. He just seems to live in the backfield. But what's interesting about this defense is they swarm. They do run a lot of two high safeties, what we call quarter-quarter halves. So they are going to try to take away the hot routes, very similar to what BYU did and what Utah thought that they were going to be able to do. So it's going to be important that as USC, um, as the game goes on, they get into a three-running back rotation, as opposed to just a one-two hit and then bring in your closer with Marquis Step. I think you got to get Marquis Step involved in this game early because of, of the Vi Malapii and in Step's physical nature of running, it could potentially wear down a very aggressive Washington defense. But you talked about post-game um, evaluation of a play. Fink is going to have to do some of that as well because they're not going to give him those chunk plays, those 50-50 balls. This defense is more talented. If he throws up some of those in a game like this, Washington's defensive backs have the ability to take advantage of such plays. And, you know, um, Elijah Molden uh, in the secondary already has seven pass breakups. So, again, these are guys that, that may not coming down with interceptions, but they're definitely ball sharks, and they'll take their chances whenever they get them. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, Miles Bryant back there, a true freshman, and Cameron, Cameron Williams that USC recruited hard. Keith Taylor, uh, Kyler Gordon. I mean, it, it kind of goes on and on, like you mentioned, Elijah Molden. This is definitely a Washington offense where I think the strength is in that back seven compared to the Utah offense on Friday night where, for sure, their strength was up in their front four. So, like you talked about with the – with the running game, I, I think it, ha it it didn't have to be there against Utah and you could still move the ball. I, I think there's a chance it has to be there against Washington if you want to really move the ball and put up points against the Huskies. Last thing here, a quarter of the way through the season, give me your sort of, you know, pleasant surprises, th things that you, when you watch this USC team, you're thinking this is something they can kind of hang their hat on. This is something that I like. Uh, that I've seen over these first four games of the season? You know, and again, uh, I, I still maintain that they've yet to, this team has yet to play their best game um, across the board. The kicking game for me has been a great surprise. And I'm not talking about the return game. I'm talking about the kicking game because at one point there was a stat where Utah uh, the ball was kicked in the end zone every time, and Utah never got a chance to, to, to return it. And that can be demoralizing for a team that is forced to start and now has to methodically march down the field from the, what, 25-yard line yeah. on every time. So th that's, a, that's a positive. The punting game also gives this team the assurance that if they have to flip the field and live for another series, that they have the confidence and, and a great Australian kicker who has yet to really demonstrate his true potential of how well we've seen him kick in practice. So those two areas are areas of surprise to me because they were so inconsistent last year. Um, but in terms of the way that this team, the approach of this team, I love what I'm seeing with the in-game adjustments. This team uh, remains aggressive even when it seems like the opponent tries to take away something they have a great deal of confidence in their skilled players, in particular led by Michael Pittman Jr. 
it just seems like sometimes there are times where these guys are unguardable. And when you really need to clutch plays, guys are starting to identify themselves as, as um, clutch playmakers. I like what I'm seeing with the rotation and the running backs. But for me, the pleasant surprise, although they're still somewhat inconsistent, is the right side of the line with um, the, the, two, uh, the, the two new guard and tackle. Is Jaylen, it Jalen McKenzie? Yeah, Jalen McKenzie, right guard, Drew Richmond at, at right tackle. Look, I, I'm more of a fan of Drew Richmond, and I really think I, I watched him be as versatile as needed playing either right tackle and then moving inside to right guard. But I like the fact that these guys are nasty. When they get their, their claws on you, their big paws, they tend to wear teams down. Now, there's still some issues with um, uh, protections, but that, that comes with time. The more time you spend with, uh, with others around you, the more you begin to see how they fire off the ball and so forth and so on. But overall, I think that the core, if the nucleus of the offensive line can remain intact, they will give themselves a puncher's chance to really close out games when you need to run the ball the most. The other thing that I like what I'm seeing defensively is last year we saw a lot of, of, of deep balls being completed on the secondary. The corners um, with the healthy Elijah Griffin, Isaac Taylor Stewart, and then you rotate in a Chris Steele, their names aren't being called as often. And you like that. You like the fact that teams can't just – you know, take a Hail Mary shot and it ends up in a pass interference or a completed pass. I like the fact that they are competing and that this team is great gaining confidence inside the 20. They're making it very difficult and they're being very stingy with giving away points. I like that they don't concede and that there's a fight to them. Granted, they're still young and they're still learning how to play a complete game, you got to be optimistic with what you're seeing. Collectively, you just never know what you're going to get because there are so many young guys. But when they're dialed in and they're locked in, they could potentially be the best team representing the Pac-12 on any given Saturday. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know how many people would have fully bought into that at the start of the year. Three and one after four games. Again, we talked so much about these first six games. I think at Washington – you know, we've, we've, it feels like we've said it every week where, okay, this upcoming game is going to give you a real sense of who this team is and what they're capable of. It, it seems like after every game so far, the, the wins and the loss, you're still thinking, okay, is, is that who this team is? But, uh, and so they'll have to take this Utah win, tuck it behind them real fast and get ready for Washington because I, I think it's pretty safe to say that at Washington uh, of these first five games is by far uh, the the toughest task that this USC has. And we'll see if it's with Matt Fink at quarterback or if it's with Keaton Slovis uh, at quarterback. That's something that potentially could be sort of a a game time, you know, Thursday, late Thursday, Friday uh, decision for for head coach uh, Clay Helton. That's obviously something we'll, we'll keep an eye on. But for Dale Rodeau, this is Eric McKinney. That, that's our look kind of back at USC's big win over number 10 Utah and then ahead a little bit at USC having a, a tough task up ahead this Saturday at Washington. Again, for Dale Rodeau, this is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to the We Are SC podcast, Monday Morning Cornerback.